Jalil. Welcome to the Security DNA Podcast produced by SecurityInfoWatch.com. I'm John Doberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch and the producer of this podcast. The editors here at Security InfoWatch utilize this podcast to provide detailed, actionable information of value to security professionals. This includes industry news, trends and analysis, technology solutions, policy risk analysis, and management. Today, it's my pleasure to bring to you part one of our two-part podcast series with Steve Lasky, the editorial director for the security group at Endeavor Business Media, and Paul Joyle, who has more than 45 years of experience in security and intelligence and international affairs, with a special concentration in Russia and the former Soviet republics. Paul served 10 years in the U.S. government with the U.S. Capitol Police and the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence from 1979 to 1989. He's been cited as an expert source by many news outlets, including Time Magazine and PBS The News Hour with Jim Lehrer. His published works include the book 15 Years of Espionage and in the 1991 Washington Post editorial Singling Out Arab Americans. Paul has close ties with the government of the Republic of Georgia. In 1998, he acted as the country's first lobbyist to the U.S. government and worked closely with former Georgian President Edward Shevardnadze and his National Security Council and Ministry of Defense during the country's fight for freedom. Later, Paul became the expert advisor to the Georgian International Oil Company, working on the early oil and BTC pipelines and the Security and Defense Committee of the Georgian Parliament. In 2005, he spoke at the memorial service for the Honorable Zureb Zvenia, the former Speaker of the Georgian Parliament, held in the United States Senate. Paul was decorated by President Shevardnadze with the Georgian Order of Honor in 2002 for his contributions to Georgia's independence. Paul remains a frequent commentator on intelligence, homeland security, international affairs, and the former Soviet Union. He's made numerous radio and television appearances and written many articles on the topics of Russian and post-Soviet affairs, intelligence, security issues, terrorism, and law enforcement. Part one, we're going to have a great conversation with Paul about the state of the Russia-Ukraine war and implications of that over the next 12 months. Drone technology involved in Ukraine's fight against Russian incursion, and the story behind Paul's near assassination years ago while standing in his driveway in Adelphi, Maryland, a crime which has still never been solved. Now let's turn it over to Steve for what promises to be a great discussion. Thanks, John. Well, I'm thrilled to have Paul here. I've I've known Paul for uh, almost all my 30, 35 years in security industry and uh, obviously he has a long and storied career in the global and intelligence communities uh, and in addition to his aforementioned credits that uh, John just spoke of Paul has been featured in television and cable programs uh, including uh, a 2012 NBC broadcast related to the FBI's Trident Breach International uh, crime cybercrime takedown and he was also uh, on the award-winning uh, NBC Dateline program in 2007, Who Killed Alexander Levinchenko, Death of a Secret Agent. Later on NBC's Dateline, uh, their hour-long program in 2015 uh, called The Real Blacklist, featuring the events surrounding Paul's still unsolved shooting at his residence by an unknown assailant following his 
Levichenko Dateline broadcast. Uh, a lot of you may have also seen him uh, recently uh, on the Netflix uh, series called Spycraft and the Curiosity Channel's Traders and Patriots. Paul's currently finishing a book along with Chris Monday on the Soviet-Russian bioweapons conspiracy, charting the history of the disinformation myth from the 50s to the present with Ukraine and Russia domestic propaganda. So, I mean, we could spend an hour just talking about his, his, his CV, but it's a lot more fun talking to the man himself. So, Paul, welcome. Well, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure. You know, you've, you've had a, uh, an incredible career. Uh, you're still going strong. Uh, you may you remain incredibly involved with uh, global political issues in general and uh, working to shed light on the current repressive regime in Russia. Uh, you've been actively involved in aiding the U.S. efforts to help the Ukrainians defend themselves over the past 20 months or so. Can you paint a picture for us right now, sort of in broad strokes, of what you assess about the current state of affairs of, uh, I guess now, is what's recognized as a war, no longer just a Russian incursion. Uh, what are the implications over the next 12 months and, and the impact of on U.S. geopolitical affairs and security in particular? Well, Steve, the, all of those, the implications uh, uh, of the Ukraine war and the involvement or lack of involvement in the United States government in helping the Ukrainians defend their sovereignty and freedom has global implications. Everyone is looking at this from from those uh, NATO countries which are on the edge of, of Russia who live in fear uh, whether they'll be next to Taiwan and China looking at is the will the U.S. have the resolve to uh, defend uh, liberty and freedom and sovereignty of nations from uh, unjustified and unnecessary invasions. So it's it's a critical time. Uh, we all know what happened in World War II with Neville Chamberlain trying to cut a deal with Hitler. You can't uh, cut a deal with a dictator who has ambitions for expansion. And Putin himself is a man who has nothing to run on other than his victories in, ex in expansion. He needs to justify his uh, re-election, even though it's a foregone conclusion, with something to show for it. Uh, Russia failed to uh, manage the, uh, the COVID crisis in the country. The demographics uh, uh, are terrible. The Russian people are impoverished um, since this war and, and because of COVID. So, he doesn't have much to um, to herald other than the fact that he has he's expanding the empire and we're once again a great uh, nation. People fear us. That's important for Russians. They want to be feared uh, rather than respected. And um, so it, it's it, it, the, the, these are serious, serious implications. And um, we know that um, the death toll. Uh, in this conflict has been enormous for both countries. Russia today stands at 80% 80, uh, 80 of what the Russian army was before the war is no longer. And uh, Ukraine, which is a much smaller nation, 
um, does not have the manpower to sustain a war of attrition year after year. And that's why <clears throat> the U.S. had suggested in uh, uh, military advice to attack on a counter uh, offensive before all the Russian defenses were put in place uh, in April. And um, the upper echelon of the, um, the, the military in Ukraine uh, were uncomfortable with that. They didn't think it was ready. They wanted more equipment, et cetera. So right now we have basically a stalemate. And unfortunately, now that uh, Putin is feeling the, the um, divisions in America, he is now using ballistic missiles to attack Kiev. That happened yesterday. And um, the use of the ballistic missiles shows that they're going, uh, they're not using drones, very cheap uh, drones or low cost drones. They're going with multi million dollar ballistic missiles. Uh, that led to taking out the largest um, uh, cell provider. In Ukraine, 24 million people were, were, were without phones and Internet service in Kiev. Um, traffic lights were disabled. Uh, air raid siren alert system was um, um, was um, uh, disabled. So and then energy uh, energy uh, centers were were destroyed. And of course, the typical Russian uh, methodology of bombing civilian high-rise buildings in order to spread fear in the population. So we're at a critical point, and um, without um, the U.S. and NATO's resolve, uh, as Putin is gloating now on television, that now we will win decisively and we will grab all of Ukraine, uh, he is rallying the domestic support along those lines. So it's 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 a very difficult time. Do you think there's a fatigue that now is uh, sort of enveloped both uh, uh, NATO and and the U.S., <laughs> especially with the events that have, are occurring now uh, with uh, Israel and Hamas? Is is there a danger that uh, this is on the back burner? Well, I think that there is. Um, there's, you know, at the beginning of the war, and I would say after a year, there was great. Um, you might say uh, 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 a, a great sense that Ukraine can do it, that the Russian military was was a parade ground military. It did not have <clears throat> the sophistication to to run a combined arms operation. Um, and there was there was real belief, myself included, that um, that the Ukrainians could break through get behind the existing lines, cut off the resupply and, and, and break the back of the uh, Russian military. Well, that, that breakthrough didn't occur. Um, and uh, so yes, there's fatigue because the price is great. And the, the, the amount of, uh, of uh, trained um, officers have been greatly diminished. I mean, to give you an example, between uh, 2014 and um, 2022, NATO trained about 16,000 mil um, Ukrainian military special operators. And we all know that the special operators in Ukraine are some of the best in the world. Behind the scenes uh, operations, 
blowing up and sabotaging locations in um, in Russia itself, uh, the use of sophisticated uh, uh, marine uh, drones to blow up ships uh, and disable ships, the use of um, uh, missiles to take out the Moskva uh, uh, cruiser, uh, the flagship of the Russian Navy in the Black Sea. But um, if you take those men trained for special operations and put them in infantry roles, that does not translate because the the skill sets are different. And of those uh, 16,000 special operators, two thirds were lost in combat. Mm. Two thirds. That's staggering. It's a staggering figure. Uh, That's a great investment that was squandered because of the fact that they didn't have uh, a Western trained uh, military. And the other thing is, is that the, um, the, the top leadership of the, of the Ukrainian military are Soviet trained. And what's the Soviet uh, philosophy of war? Well, and, and which now is Russia's. It's artillery and tanks. That's, that's, their, that's their way of battle, artillery. They will. They were shooting uh, sixty to sometimes eighty thousand uh, one fifty two rounds uh, per month. Destroy the target, destroy the city, send in your green troops to rape and pillage. That's what Zukov did in World War Two to beat uh, beat the Nazis, and uh, they haven't advanced much beyond that. The the Russian special operations forces that tried to take um, the 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 air base outside of Kiev in order to uh, land reinforcements was decimated by by the um, by the Ukrainian forces. So the the Spetsnaz elements of the Russian um, military have been decimated as well. They're a shadow of themselves and they have lost thousands of tanks. Um, And um, so getting into an attrition war, trench warfare is to the advantage of the Russian. The Russians were wise. They took the time to build very staggeringly deep um, defenses and trench lines. When they first started out, they were just straight trench trench lines that easily flood and, and are really worthless. So then they started doing it zigzag approach and bunkers and uh, occupying the high ground with artillery so that when the counteroffensive started in June um, and, and, and the one thing that the Russians have is mines, millions and millions of mines. They were planting mines stacked four or five of them on top of each other. And when the Ukrainians attempted uh, to uh, initiate the counterattack, uh, they divided their forces in in three uh, um, uh, salients. And we, the American military, said, "No, no, no! Concentrate on one. Concentrate on the area that they're they're just completing the the defenses." Well, they had they thought that they were going to do do it their way. I mean, we can't order them about. They're not uh, part of NATO. And the other element that uh, hurt the the Ukrainians was the concentration in Bakhmut, where they decided to create some kind of uh, uh, Pyrrhic-Stalingrad victory. 
hugely costly in manpower. Some of the best of the leaders were killed there. So um, the philosophy of the Ukrainian um, military, uh, even though they were innovative in the drone front, um, it was it was not, um, let's say, systematic. And the one thing I can say about the Russians, unfortunately, is that they are learning uh, the lessons of the Ukrainian war. They they learned about the use of drones and they've taken an all um an all population approach and all, all of government approach to preparing for their counteroffensive, which we expect to see in, in, in the spring. That means they reinstituted a military training in the high school for the first time since 1991 in the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And two of the courses that are required to be taken by all high school students is jo- drone operations in, in battle space and ISR and reconnaissance um, operations of drones. So it's all in, they, they're in bed, as you know, with, the, um, with Iran in the Shahed um, a drone, which is now manufactured in uh, Russia with Russian enhancements. And what's the Russian enhancements? Stolen uh, um, uh, Western technology that they got through the gates, uh, avoiding sanctions. So. They're becoming more lethal. Their their troops still are are um, uh, from a military standpoint uh, uh, not motivated and inferior in the training. They're taking kids and, and giving them a month of training and throwing them to the front front. Yeah, it's, always, it's always tough. It's always tough to get conscripts to buy into a, a war yeah. started uh, that, that doesn't really have any meaning for them. Uh, I mean, I want to get back to you on uh, the technology end of, of this war, because it is it is rather unique, especially the drone uh, technology, which you've had a big hand in uh, uh, working with the Ukrainian government uh, and, and liaisoning with uh, U.S. Uh, uh, personnel here. But, I, you know, I, I want to talk about uh, your history with Russia, uh, because it's it, it really is unique uh you know i'm waiting for the movie because i think it would be fascinating but uh you know you've been a vocal critic of uh of vladimir putin uh for you know since he was uh instituted in office in 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 february of 2007 you told dateline nbc that the murder of uh former kgb agent alexander levinchenko served as a warning to all critics of Putin uh, and the government that uh, uh, dissent will not be tolerated. Uh, and then, sure enough, a few days later on March 1st, uh, you were shot and wounded outside your home standing in your driveway in Adelphi, Maryland. And the Washington Post reported that the attack was under investigation by the FBI. And earlier that evening, you had dined with uh, former KGB agent Oleg uh, Kalugin, uh, whom the Russian government had accused of being a U.S. agent. You also later told uh, the Washington Washington Post that you were not sure whether the attack was politically motivated, uh, and we'll kind of give that a wink and a nod. And to date, there has never been any suspects charged in your attempted murder. So just give us a little background on these events. What led up to this frightening attempt on your life? and how you've reconciled it over time. <clears throat> well, 
you know, I had a long history, um, as you said, in 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 post-Soviet space. Uh, my first trip to Moscow was in 1991, after the uh, putsch in the fall of uh, 1991. During that trip, uh, uh, I, I reached out uh, to uh, Major General Oleg Kalugin, former chief of KGB foreign counterintelligence. He was a critic of Putin and a critic of uh, the Soviet system. And uh, so we we got into business together. Uh, we represent we worked with ATT to uh, create a joint venture. He was connected with a data communications company and I was connected with ATT. So we did uh, succeed in that. It didn't uh, it, it was eventually um, ATT backed out as at the, when things started getting a little dicey for for them and for Oleg and I. And uh, <clears throat> and then uh, Oleg and I, uh, Oleg came to the United States under a visa for he and I to teach a course in the Pentagon on counterintelligence and international affairs. And it was during his time here in Washington that Putin accused him of espionage. So at that point, Oleg had no choice. He could not go back to Moscow. Um, so he requested asylum here. Uh, and it's important to note because of that, he was not a defector. <clears throat> but Oleg and I had a had a contact, a mutual friend in Moscow at the time. Who eventually had to flee. Um, Moscow <clears throat> and um, settled in London. And it was it was through that connection that I became close with uh, Alexander Litvinenko um, and uh, Oleg, myself and this Russian um, had some information about Putin's personal life that uh, became a threat to those that had this knowledge. I think that was a contributing factor for the for the murder of Litvinenko. Uh, as well as other things that he was involved with. And, and of course, um, um, that was another element of uh, of my, uh, uh, the, the irritation of Putin personally in me. And then, and then of all the work I did in Georgia, bringing Georgia closer to the uh, Western community, transfer of uh, uh, the first significant transfer of of military technology to the former uh, to a former Soviet state, Huey helicopters, the train and equip program that brought American trainers in to completely uh, rehab the uh, Georgian military, and uh, other things that uh, shall go unsaid. But um, I um, I was always a critic, uh, and for ten years I published uh, the Daily Report on Russia. The former Soviet republics published five days a week facts to our clients in government and business, and we we targeted Putin right from the beginning, identifying him as connected with the Tomboff gang in St. Petersburg, and part of a corrupt uh, mentality of organized crime that persists to this day in spades. So that that's that's a short version of the history. So no, you were did. When Levitchenko, uh, 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 Levitchenko, excuse me, right? Uh, when you know, with with his demise, uh, were did you start at any time fearing for your own safety? Well, t- 
to tell you the truth, I was so pissed off at what they did to him. I, I went into the um, the fight mode, not flee. So it's an interesting story. But at my home for Thanksgiving that year, um, I had uh, the former um, Georgian ambassador to Washington in, and his wife, who was also the former national security advisor to Shevardnadze and the former uh, foreign minister of the country. I had Oleg Kalugin and his wife, and uh, also Andrei Piankovsky and his wife, who uh, are well-known critic and, and dissident um, in, in, in Moscow at the time. And the phone call came in that, that Sasha had died. So I said, look, it, we, we, have to, we have to speak out of this. This is, this is Putin um, murdering this man by using a nuclear weapon in downtown London, half a block from the United States Embassy. He was poisoned half a block from the United States Embassy. I said, I'm not going to take that. So I started working with Dateline, and uh, that led to um, <clears throat> to the Dateline broadcast about who killed uh, Alexander Litvinenko. And to this day, I'm still very close to the producer. He just called me yesterday, actually. We, we stay in contact. I affectionately referred to Justin as the man who got me shot. Um, but but um, so I was with o- Oleg at the spy museum having a cocktail. I came home um, and uh, it was raining. And that night, my wife and the kids should have been at swim practice uh, because my kids were in that um, that pre-Olympic uh, training program. And um, uh my son Raymond had had a science project due, so everyone was home. But the lights outside were out, and um, you know people were uh, working. So I pulled into the driveway, and uh, I, uh, I didn't see anybody. I got out of the car, and uh, there were two men waiting in the bushes. Um, I was attacked from behind, <clears throat> and um, I immediately counterattacked. I uh, elbowed him in the solar effects, turned, uh, hit me upside the head, knocked my glasses off. I I gave him a trachea shot, went for his eyes. He leaned back and I took him to the ground, but I didn't see the second man. And then he said to that person, shoot him. And when I heard that, I, I kind of t- turned sideways on the ground and put my arms over my heart uh, because center mass shots are the most, you know, most... Right, uh, right. Uh, uh, familiar. And uh, the bullet went through me. Um, and um, I uh, and then they came in to do a hut, uh, gunshot and, and, and uh, a headshot and the um, gun jammed and they cleared the chamber and put another round in and jammed again. And Jeez. at that point, the lights are going on out, outside my house, my 120 pound dog is going nuts. And um, <clears throat> So they, the two, um, uh, two attackers fled, not by the road, but by, or, by over a fence into a cemetery and back. So when the units uh, arrived and they were very speedy, the police, they couldn't find anybody. There was no sense of no car in the neighborhood. The car was parked in the cemetery, we assume. And, um, and luckily, um, I was, uh, uh, I had medical treatment right away. I was transported to the Washington hospital center where I remained for about a month, most of that time, uh, on a breathing tube and had a number of operations there. 
And over uh, a four-year period, I had seven operations to do. Uh, I had a colostomy. I had to get it reversed. I had a lot, I had a lot of stuff, you know. Yeah. So yeah. so anyway. Well, I, I mean, I, I, again, uh, you know, that was a that was a dark time, and the the, the resolve uh, that you had to, uh, number one bounce back from that, and number two to uh, jump back in the game uh, is is astounding i mean yeah. uh, and it's you know and, uh, my uh, my hats off to you for staying in that fight because it, it is important and i know it's important to you but so let's let's get back to the the technology angle of this here mm-hmm. uh you know technology and the advanced technology to be specific has been one of the unique aspects of the russian incursion into ukraine uh, you've been involved in some public and some classified technology exchanges with the Ukraine military to help boost their capabilities. Uh, the drone. Uh, the, well, the drone I, 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 would, I, I have not been involved in a, a classified with the military, but I'm, I'm associated with a group of former U.S. Right. special operators. And and we have we, we believe that in this conflict that COTS products can be modified with technologies and produced in mass at a uh, locally in in Ukraine that can be decisive on the battlefront. So it's a new form of warfare um, in which uh, we have companies in Ukraine that can produce uh, fixed wing uh, drones for uh, roughly speaking uh, $600. And then you can add some some um, very interesting uh, American add-on technology that is not ITAR um, uh, controlled mm-hmm. that can be used in in swarm attacks to overwhelm and overmatch uh, the, the 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 Russian forces, and and some of the add-ons allow for drones to operate without GPS. The real problem that we have. Um, uh, and this is a uh, this is also applies to China, is that both the Russians and the Chinese have extensive capabilities in electronic warfare. We got out of the electronic warfare game when we started the war on terrorism. All our operators in the signet areas uh, focused on counter IEDs because that's what was killing our boys in in uh, overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. But now we're in high intensity conventional warfare and we have to redirect um, uh, capabilities in uh, building EW capability ourselves. And the, the services now are committed to training the army, especially training all soldiers in EW operations and awareness, because if you've got a cell phone and you're using it on the battlefront, I'll find you and I'll send in artillery. So uh, what's what's happened is our uh, we've tried to promote our plans. Uh, we're uh, the leader of this group I'm part of, a Navy SEAL. He is actually credentialed with the um, Ukrainian military intelligence units that are uh, in providing guidance in, in, in these types of arts. So we're still hoping that um, that we can uh, get uh, uh, experimental drone squad- squadrons configured in a way to get through that 
EW uh, envelope that wraps around the battlefield, which then inhibits the ability to use these uh, systems, which are cheap, which are manufactured. And let me tell you, when when the Russian troops hear drones come and they run. So dropping an 82 millimeter mortar on them or having bombers uh, that can uh, unload, come back, refuel, re rearm, go back again. You can get four to five uh, waves uh, per, per night. And then you have the kamikaze drones, which seek out very specific uh, capability. And the two most important capabilities you want to use kamikazes on is the EW units themselves and air defense systems. And of course, aircraft, well, I mean, uh, helicopter, uh, helicopter uh, uh, bases themselves. So you know, it, it's a new type of warfare that we, we believe could be essential uh, in the Pacific as well. You know, we, we uh, you know, I've talked about this before. In fact, uh, uh, recently you wrote an article, a cover story on Security Technology Executive Magazine about uh, uh, how the uh, commercial drone technology not being used for uh, warfare uh, is going to spill over to uh, some of the counterintelligence operatives uh, and uh, uh, the bad guys uh, are going to be adapting this technology here uh, in North America. Can talk a little bit about that fear and, you know, the realities of yeah. what we could be looking at. Well, thanks for bringing up that article, because I think the, right now that, that turned out to be quite prescient about the threat of commercial COTS products being used not only by uh, um, uh, hostile agents, terrorists or, or foreign uh, operatives, but by criminal organizations and, and, and by others. So <clears throat> um, there's a number of troubling uh, instances that happen. We see on the, on the, uh, on the um, non, let's say, uh, Homeland Security threat level, uh, just a drone operator, you know, he takes his drone, he shows up at a football game, and now he wants to fly his uh, drone into the bowl of a, of an NFL game. Well, um, if a drone crashes, then people can be um, um, harmed or possibly even killed. Um, so there are efforts being taken around the stadiums to identify uh, right now drones and try to uh, mitigate that potential threat by uh, dispatching uh, police to where the drone operator is and ascertain then the threat level, but but most importantly, have him retrieve the drone itself. There's not, <clears throat> we don't have the authorities now in the United States to mitigate this threat other than federal resources, federal departments. Um, and this is, uh, this is, there's legislation that uh, that's been held up by the, by our Republican colleagues uh, because of privacy concerns on this. But we have to give authorities to the major police departments and other um, uh, entities like uh, critical infrastructure operators. Um, the federal government cannot provide the protection, detection and protection 
for the continental United States. We're 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 a continent here, um, and the feds uh, are, are, are you know they they can't do it all. So we need that. We've had cases, very troubling, of a drone that was scrubbed of all identifiable uh, markings, including the camera was taken out, DJI drone camera was taken out, etc. And it was flown. They they tried to fly this into electrical transformers at a substation in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and the drone itself had long tethers of copper. And the obviously the the idea behind this was to bring this drone, crash it into a transformer, and short circuit it. Uh, so you you have cases of experimentation. And of course, you have case a lot of cases of drones being transporting, whether it be a, uh, a cell phone into a prison yard or drugs. You have drugs being dispatched uh, over the border. And then you have uh, cartels using drones to deliver explosives to kill people that they, they want to kill. So. When you look at the threat, the point I tried to make in the article is that this this threat is real. It's now. And we must make sure that the legal authorities are expanded to local law enforcement and other critical infrastructure um, purveyors so that they can take the steps necessary to protect these vital elements and um, that they that they own or manage. And that includes uh, electrical utilities and other other key um, uh, radars and other uh, elements to our aviation industry. So I, I, I was very honored to be able to write that article for you. And I think uh, it, it generated a lot of interest. Paul and Steve, this has been a fascinating conversation about the current state of affairs in the Ukraine-Russian war and the technology being utilized, as well as Paul's harrowing fight for survival many years ago. Tune in later this month for part two of our podcast as we talk with Mr. Joyle about the cyber aspects of the Russia-Ukraine war and the potential use of AI and deepfakes as a counterintelligence platform being turned on the West. We'll also get Paul's views on how the renewed emergence and political energy of terrorist groups like Hamas has affected our view of domestic security and global risk. Just as a reminder to our audience, this podcast is for you so you can stay informed about trends in the security industry anywhere, anytime. To access our podcast lineup, go to podbean.com and search for Security DNA. You can also find our podcasts in our Security Frontline, Integrator Newswire, and Security Week e-newsletters. Of course, we'd love to get some feedback from you, our listeners, about topics you're interested in. If you have a suggestion, send an email to Steve Lasky, S-L-A-S-K-Y, at securityinfowatch.com. This episode of Security DNA Podcast was recorded and produced by John Doberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch. For Steve Lasky, Paul Joyle, and everyone here at Security InfoWatch, thanks for listening and stay safe out there wherever you may be.